Hey, this is Alex Downey, and I'm talking to you from the Temple of Vinyl down here in Brighton Town, UK, and you're listening to the Decisive Podcast with Roberto Q. Ingram. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Decisive Podcast Series. Special. We're back. December the 5th, Wednesday, that is, and yeah, we have on the program today, but before I get there, I'm sure you're getting ready for the holiday season, so please accept this episode as a gift because we have on the program from Brighton near the sea, Free Rotation Festival resident, third ear, the proud owner of Temple Vinyl, Mr. Alex Downey, here for an interview, and I am um, excited and more than happy to have him with us today. Hey, welcome to the program, sir. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> no problem. We're going to get a little bit of insight on the life, the music, and what it all means to him in his own words. So let's get started. Whoa, I better put my slippers on for this. Yeah, <laughs> it's a long <laughs> I know you're not used to this, this spotlight. <laughs> <laughs> One. Except for all the huge fest- festivals you were, you're playing oh, yeah. at. Well, well. <laughs> uh, how's it? How's it sitting over there in Brighton? Yeah, it's pretty pretty good. It's warm. It hasn't winter hasn't really hit yet. Brighton by the sea. It's very bright today. Ironically. By the way, were you uh, born and raised in Brighton? No, I come from London actually, but um, because I've lived here longer than I didn't live here. Then technically, I can I can say I'm from here. Mm-hmm. That's my stock answer. And why you wanted to get closer to the sea? Well, I came down here just to move in with some friends, and um, and then I started going out raving at the Zach Club every week, and then uh-huh. that sort of sealed the deal for me. And um, yeah, Brighton's a pretty cool city. Looking forward to uh, part of the Brexit Club. Oh God. Uh, uh, I don't know. That's just like a dark cloud that you're. It's like a dark cloud in the sky, and you're just waiting for the thunderstorm to happen or something. It's just dark cloud you, like Donald Trump. You know that weird tension you get before the before the. You know that weird sort of electric static in the air that you get before before the thunderstorm happens. That's what it feels like. Totally understood. Um, I don't know what it, I don't know what I just don't know what to make of it. Just shaking my head. Just shaking my head and putting. Yeah, you know, just face palming the whole time, really. Internal, internally face palming. <laughs> it's certainly uh, clear and no secret that you're addicted to music. Um, when were you? Ex- when were you exposed to music, and has it been part of your upbringing? Yeah. Well, I mean, when I grew up, um, there was always music in the house because mm-hmm. my dad was. My dad lived with us till I was five, and he was a composer, arranger, lead, mm-hmm. trump, lead trumpet player, session musician. He was uh, he was one of those people that was trying to do it all. Like the equivalent would be, you know, someone that's a DJ and someone that's a remixer and someone that's a producer and someone that runs a label. It's hard to do it all, isn't it? And he was doing it all. You either you either get producers or you get DJs. You know, occasionally you get people that can do both really well, but they're kind of freaks. I don't know. Mm. Anyway, he was one of those crazy people that was just, you know, trying to do both. And uh, so he was always 
playing the piano in the house or rehearsing on the trumpet. And um, so there was always music around and my mum's a singer. Oh, wow. She was was a classically trained singer. Uh, She was in like um, a girl group. Okay. In the in the early sixties, late fifties, called the Carey Sisters. The Carey Sisters. Oh, yeah. The fifties. So you know, yeah, wow. late fifties, early sixties. Yeah. She, she was. Uh, wow. There was three of them, and um, I don't know. Yeah, she was a singer. I mean, she could have gone on and done more with it, but she got a bit nervous when she's on stage. So she was always singing. Stage fright. Mom, stage frights. <laughs> Well, singing with, yeah. with the girls' group. Wow, that's that's yeah, a I mean, they, they unfortunate won, like, situation. Yeah. They won like talent competitions, and they were on television, television, and a few times, and they were in the newspapers and that. And I don't know what happened. She should have continued it, but no. What did you take away from this uh, exposure? Um, and anything good from the uh, the work ethic your father laid out? Uh, well, to be honest with you. Um, when I was growing up, I, I just took it for granted. Okay. I didn't realize that I was around some of the best musicians in the world. Mm. I just thought they were fat alcoholics. <laughs> I, I get it. You know what I mean? That's what I, I, I know that's exactly what, what you mean. That's all I thought. And then, I don't know, I suppose uh, I just took it for granted. And um, at some point when I got a bit older, I decided to start learning the trumpet because I wanted to, I think I wanted to make my dad um, proud, you know, and I've got pretty good at the trumpet pretty quickly. But I was also in the school choir. I was in a church choir, you know. So I was like, I was obviously musical, but I didn't realise I was musical. Well, you know, in the church, you definitely got some soul. You definitely yeah. got some spirit in you. Okay, uh huh, man. Yeah. So, um, but then I got really quite academic, and um, I did. I stopped playing the trumpet because. I think I had too much to live up to with my dad and um okay. and then I don't know like I, I just was very academic it was I music wasn't a big a big deal it was just something that was there it was like it wasn't like my passion mm-hmm. then as I got older uh, and I remember like going to Ronnie Scott's with my dad when I was 16 and you know started getting into the culture of it a little bit okay, and what's, what's, what's Ronnie Scott? It's a famous jazz club in, okay. in, in London, and you know, any like well-known session musician living in London would frequent it or be quite often playing in, in at gigs there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you go there with your dad, and everyone know everyone knows your dad. So everyone's like, oh, you're Alan Downey's son. Let's let's buy you a drink, you know. So I remember going there, having a good time, and um, I suppose I started getting into the the culture of it a bit more around six, 16, 15. And then, um, yeah, so... 15, 16, really, and this was, this was England. Yeah, I, it wasn't really until um, I was, I'd moved out of home and moved to Brighton and started going out raving all the time that I really started to get a passion for music, you know? Because it was my music, it was electronic music, you know? And it was a revolution in sound, wasn't it, really? And it was something that could be mine rather than my dad's. And you fell in love with techno music um, in the most important beginnings of the genre in the 90s. And you were encouraged by some of the most influential figures. Um, can you tell us those talents' names and where 
and how they became a massive influence in your music pro perspective perspective shall i say yeah well since you're on the topic of electronic music that's a well like there was to be honest with you like when, before i left home i was listening to kit i used to live in london okay. so i used to listen to kiss fm i used to go out kiss raving FM. yeah <laughs> i used to go out raving with my friends mm -hmm. but i didn't really get it because i've never actually indulged in any kind of drug experience i mean i used to get sort of get it I used to go to some really good clubs like Rage at Heaven, where Groove Rider and Fabio were residents, and um, uh, Groove Rider and Fabio. Uh huh. You know, I used to go out. I used to go out to a party called Knowledge in London, which was a famous techno party with like Brenda Russell, Colin Dale, Colin Favor, all those kind of people were playing. And I went to that. Richards? <laughs> no, no, no that's way I'm before just... that. Um, but I didn't really. I, did, I sort of got it, but I didn't really get it. You know. Um, but around that time, I was listening to Kisso all the time, and Colin Dale had a, re a regular show. He was really influential, and as, as was Colin Favor. And there was also a DJ called Mixmaster Morris, who used to play more ambient, sort of like cosmic sort of stuff that um, I'd also been turned on to through uh, music like The Orb. Okay. No? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I used to record a lot of stuff off Kiss FM and on, on cassette. And um, so that was a big influence. And then I suppose when I was around like 18, 19, I can't remember, probably 19, I, I went to this event called um, Big Love, which was organized by this really famous party organization called Universe. And they did a party called Tribal Gathering. Mm -hmm. but they did this event, event called Big Love. And uh, I can't remember who was on the lineup, but it was a pretty good lineup. And there was people like Laurent Garnier there. And um, yeah, that was the first time I kind of indulged, you know what? <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I finally started to get it. When you're saying get it, what do you mean by I didn't get it? Well, or I finally I, got it. Okay, well, from, what, for, for me, what happened, to be honest with you, was that I suddenly realized in a flash that humanity, humankind, have been dancing to tribal rhythms since the dawn of time. Oh, yes. And it's completely, oh, in yes. our, it's completely in our DNA. And because I was high on LSD and MDMA, mm -hmm. um, I obviously was having a, a, bit of a, a bit of an insight, you know, right. a, bit, a bit of a eureka moment. Yeah. And it's just, oh, right, okay, this is completely what humans do, you know? Mm -hmm. We, you we, can hear we, the music in a different per perspective or different. Yeah, of course you can hear it. I mean, you can, but you can tune into it much better when you when you're when you've got something like that in your system because it. I don't know. It just opens you up. You know, I'm not going to get into like going into what because everyone knows. Everyone knows, but yeah, I mean that's not necessary. But I just it's 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 interesting for me um, because I, not to cut you off, but on the same subject, a kid came to me and asked. He asked me what I was doing, and, asked, uh, and I told him I was a DJ, and he said, what kind of music? And I said, techno. He said, oh, you have to take ecstasy to listen to techno, and I just flipped. <laughs> it was like, no. <laughs> Humans decide to do what they're going to do, but the music yeah. is what it is. Yeah. You know. So, but, okay. That well, was on the same know, thing. On the same. It's a thing you could debate for, forever. I mean, yeah. obviously, like. There's no debate. I mean, people do what they do, you know. Some some people I know they've never ever done drugs and they love techno and they they've, they've got record collections, you know. Some exactly. people it's a phase, it's a fad. I mean, everyone's got their own story with it, but um, exactly. you know, basically, drugs make bad music sound okay. 
That's a good drug, one. Drugs, drugs, <laughs> drugs make drugs make really good music sound even better than it already is. So, you know, some of the some of the some of the biggest legendary uh, musicians have proved that, haven't they? <laughs> but obviously, yeah, totally. But if you come, if you can come back down to reality mm-hmm. and listen to, listen to a piece of music and it can still sound amazing, then you know it's a good piece of music. That's like, what I'm talking about. You know, uh, regardless of what state of mind you're in, but yeah, exactly. I'm just I'm just talking about what for a lot of people of my generation in this country, mm-hmm. what was a big catalyst for oh. getting us to be become really passionate about this music. It's because you know it's got a lot to do with that. You know, mm-hmm. can't you can't get away from it. You know, because mm-hmm. um, in some in some in some places in America, this destroyed people's lives rather than to. <laughs> they help them to understand or be, you know, totally. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not talking about smack. I'm not talking about. I mean, what, I mean, no, I mean I'm talking about acid and ecstasy. Okay, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. You know, and maybe yeah. speed. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that was. That was the thing that changed changed culture. Getting back to your point, the I get it factor. I understand. Well, I start, you know, when I moved to, you know, so I had those experiences at those raves, and you know, I started going out every week, every weekend to this club in Brighton called the Zach Club, which was one of the only places in the country you could go clubbing-wise to go and hear music till five, six in the morning. There wasn't many places that had a license to do that. I think there was like the Hacienda, the Arches in Glasgow, um, Ministry of Sound. You know, there was like. There was only Bagley's. There were only a few places that you could do it, and this was like on my doorstep. And uh, you know, it had some amazing legendary nights there. That um, you know, a lot of the DJs that were playing there have kind of gone on to become much more than what they were then. I mean, there was mm-hmm. people like DJ Harvey was playing there oh, on wow. Monday nights at a party called Tonka. You know, and you know, on a Monday night you could go down there and see Lauren Garnier and Cole Cox playing all night for a fiver. On a Monday night, Monday 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 night raving was big in Brighton. Okay, that's what me and my friends did. You know, we went out on Monday nights quite a lot of the time. But Fridays was a big night that we used to go to. It was a techno night. So, you know, um, a guy called Eric Powell was the resident DJ. He ran a record label called Bush. Bush. Oh and, yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And mm-hmm. and Bush put a lot of really good music out. Really good. Um, but you know, house techno. Um, and the red series which dave clark put out mm-hmm. um, that was also on bush wasn't it yeah that was yeah, on bush right. and the night the night that i was the night that i was going to was called red okay so dave clark played there occasionally and i saw jeff mills there um derek may i saw him play there once um but there was a lot of other djs that were playing like hard house and trance because back in those days there wasn't really such a distinction between hard techno Hard acid techno, right. trance, mm-hmm. like go out and you'd hear it all on the same night. You know, there wasn't really so much of a distinction. Like there was a night in London called Eurobeat 2000, and that had a lot of techno and trance as well. You know, there were there wasn't so much of a divide um, back then. So people like Dave Randall, he was one of my favourite DJs. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. I remember Dave Randall. So this yeah. was an eclectic, a eclectic evening of electronic music. Yeah, I mean, they had um, a DJ called Mrs. Woods, who was like, in a, she was a lot older than most people, and she was a resident at an event called Trade in London, and and she was from, 
probably quite techno-y. I mean, at, at trade you had DJs like Daz Sound and Trevor Rockcliffe. You know, oh. they were they were they were playing techno. You know, <laughs> Daz so, Sound. Yeah, yeah. I, used yeah. To, I bought a, quite a few of Trevor Rockcliffe stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Homecoming. So, yeah. So there was so it was a bit more of a melting pot back then. So my influences were you know quite mixed up when I was going to the Zap. Um, I bought everything from you know deep house to trance to acid to banging techno. Um, but yeah, it was only so I saw Jeff Mills there. But it was only when I started going to Lost in London okay. regularly that my whole sort of perspective properly shifted to you know more techno, more. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. So with all uh, that, so that's that was your that was your early beginnings of DJing as well. Uh, well, I started buying records in ninety two. Just start. I was hanging out with people that bought records, okay. and I got a bit of a, got a bit of a sort of bug for buying records. Okay. I didn't even have a turntable. <laughs> I just started buying. Records. <laughs> I, I just liked no, the whole thing. One. No, I okay. just liked the whole thing. Going to the shop I, and listening and listening to it and hold on to it and wait till you buy one. <laughs> yeah. Um. And uh, I, I bought. I managed to get enough money to buy one turntable for like two hundred pounds. Okay. Bought it from a, an old dub reggae DJ. And then my friend had a turntable, and we used to, you know, put them together in either my flat or his flat, and exactly, okay. And just had a little made-to-fade cam mixer, which had just had two faders and a crossfader. <laughs> made-to-fade. Oh yeah. God. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. It was a really, really simple mixer actually, which uh-huh. I think uh, probably had a lot to do with the way I mixed because you didn't have loads of effects. You didn't have. Right. Uh, you couldn't take the you didn't have all the EQs, mm-hmm. no effects. You just had to get two records running together and sounded really good. So that was quite a good way of learning, really. Um, so that was what year? What year would you say launched your DJ career? After after all the collecting, finally getting your two turntables. I think I, I prob- probably probably '94. Like was when I like when I had a. a a pretty strong decision to follow that path okay because i think i was just on the dance floor at the zap and i just had this kind of moment where i just thought yeah this is what i want to do i want to i want to do what that guy's doing i want to i want to be up there it wasn't so much about commanding it was more about being a conduit okay being a channel you know and and i kind of got that the dj was Everything that I was hearing coming through the speakers was being processed in his brain first. Right. For some reason, I I found that to be something to aspire to. Oh, super. Um, and that was about '94. Um, so you know, I then I sort of you know I was being pre- pretty committed to, to to wanting to do it from that moment. To be honest with you, um, and uh, can't remember my first. I remember my first gig. But I remember my first residency was in a, like a 24-hour cafe. Oh, okay. It so you're playing a, lounge music? <laughs> no, no, it was a it was a cafe on okay. the seafront. It was open 24 hours. So whenever a club would close, people would come in there and carry on dancing. Oh, okay. And 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 what was your selection? I was playing a lot of stuff that would play at the Zap. Was but I was playing just my own take on whatever. This this record I. I remember playing there. This is 1994 as well. It's um, it's on a label called ESP. ESP, right? And it's by Paradise 
3001, uh-huh. and the track the track's called Magnetic Flow. So I remember playing that there, and then I remember also playing a record by DJ Dag and Jam Elmar from Jam and Spoon. Mark Spoon, uh, rest in peace. Um, yeah, yeah. So this was by, uh, they called themselves Peyote, that was called Alcatraz. I remember that. Mm-hmm. That was quite tribal and uh, quite techno-y tribal, but then it was quite trancey as well. I remember playing that there. They're the only two records I can remember playing there. I'm getting to my next question. Tell us about your days of working behind the counter at Brighton's legendary Covert Records. How did that come about? Um, well, I used to go up to London quite a lot on record buying missions. I worked in London as well, so mm-hmm. even though I lived in Brighton, I was doing a bit of work up there. And um, I'd be there for like two, three days, staying with my parents, and I'd go, you know, record shopping uptown for a whole day. Sometimes two, you go to all the record and tape exchanges and get all the bargains, and then you go around Soho, all the cool shops around Soho, like Fat Cat, Tag, Tag Records. You go up to Camden, you go to Zoom Records, where my friend Billy, Billy Nasty used to work, and um, Dave Wesson used to run it. Oh, I forgot to mention Club UK. We used to go to Club UK all the time as well, um, which was also run by Universe, so who did Tribal Gathering? Anyway, um... So, yeah, I used to go on these record buying missions and come back with um, quite often like doubles that I'd pick up in the record and tape exchanges, like just things I thought were good records. And I couldn't say no to it because it's like a pound or two pounds. And and then I'd start mentioning it to friends of mine that I had an ex- extra copy and they'd be interested and make a little bit of money on it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I suppose that's where it started. But my, my attitude at the time was like this. There's no way I'd ever work in a record shop. There's not enough profit margin in it. That's what I thought at the time. But then I saw an advertisement in the window for they needed help at, at Cova. It only been running about a year or so. And um, so I phoned up and he was uh, up for it. And uh, I sort of took the opportunity, uh, you know, by, I took it seriously. I didn't, I didn't like knock it. I was like, wow, this is, this is a really, this is a good chance for me to make a bit of a stamp on Brighton. So so I really, really put a lot of time and energy into it for very little money, you know. Got to start somewhere, got to crawl before you walk, yeah. It was better than sitting around, you know, on the dole. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so, um, and then I very, very shortly after that, I realised that we had the potential to do something with it. When we moved, we, we moved actually from from a smaller smaller premises to to a much more to a basement of another record shop, which was good. And and, um, and who who's uh, the we? Well, the guy that owned it was called Rich. And then but then I I we, we started going somewhere. So I phoned up my friend, really good friend Jafy, and I said, Look, ah, Jafy, okay, right. And you need some help. I need some help. Do you want to do it? And he was up for it. So so yeah, we just ploughed loads of time and energy and commitment and focus and enthusiasm into it and kind of made a stamp on Brighton and you know made a bit of a name for ourselves um, outside of Brighton you know and you were you were selling records was it a storefront or you were selling them online or well we had initially we were just um, we were in a basement of another record shop right okay they used to call us they used to call it the techno dungeon it was it was like a drum and bass drum and bass happy hardcore they used to sell upstairs and so we had the techno dungeon and um yeah then we got a much better premises on the ground floor in sydney street so that was that was a really good move 
but the whole time that we were developing the business and for example like uh, swag records in croydon were doing right. a lot of like tech house right and my and friend and, garage, and some garage yeah tech house and garage too right yeah but um i really like shop this way a couple of times yeah. yeah yeah i really like tech house because i thought it was quite an exciting style of music it wasn't like cheesy disco filtered house and it was like it had all the things about techno that i liked but um and my friend Danny was doing a party down here called Original Sin and Optical and booking like Terry Francis and Mr. C and Nathan Coles and so there was a bit of a scene for it down here and so we kind of like started bringing that music to Brighton. Oh wow. Through, through the, well my friend was doing it through promoting and we were doing it through selling the record so I hooked up with Swag or I'd, when I was at Lost I'd go and get some records from the from, from Steve Bicknell and Cherie at Lost like because they were they were hooked up with Jeff Mills, so I'd get some stuff. So we're just oh, trying to do whatever we can to kind of bring and signing up, you know, for like accounts with people like Pinnacle and Vital and SRD and all these like cool distributors that had good music and and uh, it sort of it kicked off, you know. But the whole time we were doing that, um, we we knew that the future was selling online, and Juno were already doing it, and we were we were you know we knew that we were going to fall behind if we didn't get this website off the ground and it was kind of like um, the guy who owned the business was designing it with this uh, coder called Ed for um, about three four years so they did it on the shoestring you know um, yeah well they were doing it on the side you know they, were, they weren't doing it as a full-time thing so eventually we got online and um, did pretty well was this position an integral decision before becoming a respected DJ with a great reputation amongst the global uh, electronic community? Well, originally the reason I started work, working at the record shop was purely to help my DJ career. Um, but like, you know, because obviously it gave me access to records that are you know, a good price, access to promos. And um, also, you know, you're just making a, a bit of a name for you. You're making a name for the business, but you're making a name for yourself. It just it just goes hand in hand, you Makes know. Sense. You're selling people good records. You know, you give them a mixtape or a mix CD or something, and, and 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 then you know, it just helps you. You know, it doesn't hinder it. But even though that was my attitude of like, well, you know, I'm I'm very very clear why I'm doing this. It's because I want it to help my DJ career. It's not like we didn't run the business, you know, as well as we could. You know, we tried to get if we found a record that we liked, we'd try and get as many copies as possible because we wanted to sell as many copies as possible. You know, we weren't. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've met other people that have worked in record shops that 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 are doing it for their own career, and you can tell that they're just not really. They're not driven by the business. They're totally driven by being mm -hmm. seen behind the counter which i don't know i'm not into that really and how, how much were the pieces that you were buying uh, for the shop what like in pounds yeah what uh, i mean we used to sell you are expensive now and I'm, well, trying, yeah. I'm trying to balance out how I think most of the time a uk release was like either four pound fifty or five pounds or five pound fifty mm. i mean i'm looking at a sleeve here one of our old price tags. That's oh, yeah. a, oh, yeah. that's a that's a US that's a US that's a US release. 
by uh, Brian Aneurysm on uh, Ironbox Music. Good record. And that's £8. So we pretty much used to sell the US releases at £8. And I suppose like the Europeans, about 6 six fifty. Uh-huh. Plus, so, plus shipping. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, um, yeah. I, I mean, I don't remember what shipping has it, has, that, has that price range uh, grown dramatically from back then till now? Uh, I think so, yeah. I was... Um, God, can't remember how much. I mean, you pay like, what, 9, 10, 11 pounds mm-hmm. for a, whether it's... Depending, but depending on the region, uh, the, well, the yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, you Europeans. It all seems to be about the same price now, doesn't it? Really, whatever you're buying, mm-hmm. there doesn't seem to be so much of a distinction between whether it's a domestic or a foreign, because the whole market's completely changed. There's so much, so fewer copies being manufactured yeah. that people, you know, that, that they're not making any money on them so they're more of a people tend to you know either just try and get it out there by putting it out in a plain black sleeve with a stamp Mm -hmm. or they put a lot of effort into the presentation to make it actually something worth buying you know so yeah i I don't yeah i don't know what a lot of the time i don't know what i'm buying whether it's uk Mm. or european a lot of the time as a shop, what would you say makes you stand out more than any other shop? What is it that you do and why? Uh, I mean, you also do a lot of business on Discogs as well, so. Yeah, well, I didn't, so I didn't, um, the shop, the record shop closed down in 2006 because basically people stopped buying music. I call it the dark ages. Okay, and for so sure. We went through the dark ages and about Seven years ago, I started picking up like record collections, and um, I got a unit and started storing the, the record collections there. And uh, and the prices were pretty low back then for for records, so it, it was difficult to see where it was going because you would think really good music, like even stuff by Drexia, was only going for like five, eight, ten pounds, you know. Um, but. Uh, as the years went on, I started to see that there was more and more of a market in it, and I decided to sort of take it a bit more seriously because I, I, ne- I didn't know if I'd ever get into the record selling business again. But uh, but the, the, the whole Discogs revolution has totally changed um, the nature of the business, and um, it's a fantastic platform, isn't it? It is, but yeah, it's great because it's enabled people like myself to to, to to independently sell and I haven't had to design a website although I will um, get around to that but um, it, it yeah it's got its pluses and its minuses I can see from a summer buyers perspective perspective why it's annoying that the prices have got so high but from a seller's perspective yeah is, I mean um, but you know, I, I'm not I'm, spending a hundred euros for no record. Did I? No, no, no. Yeah. But you know what? You know, people are mad enough to pay it. Mm-hmm. And okay. you know, I've got records on my shelf that are, I actually like, and I probably would pay uh, play. Well, I might play one day, but I haven't played for ten years. If someone wants to give me a hundred quid for it, give me a hundred quid for it. I need the money, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, if I'd like, if I was a bit more financially solvent, I'd like to be a bit more generous but so if if if, you know, if if a customer wants to buy the record how do they find you I just, um, I just 
put everything that I um, that I've got for sale, put it up on my uh, Discogs page, which is the username is covert underscore operative. Um, but I call my business Temple of Vinyl. Temple of Vinyl. That's and it's so you can find Temple of Vinyl on Facebook. All right, everybody, check that out. Temple of Vinyl with um, Alex Downey. Uh, this guy has a very wide perspective of sound, so you will find. I'm sure you will find some great stuff. Um, yeah. I'm a total fan of the Free Rotation Festival in Wales. Big ups to the family, and I see you. Yeah, big ups. I'll see you in 2019. Yeah. You have held down a DJ residency there for quite some time now. Um, how did this come about, and what does the Free Roll Festival mean to you? Well, it all came about because I met Stevie O and Susie B when they were self-distributing Mind Tours records, um, driving around the country, around record shops, and uh, I met them in the record shop, and um, we took some, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we took right. some, we took some stock, and um, and then. They were like, oh, is there anything going on tonight? So um, we went out to a local event and really connected. Uh, I think they stayed at mine. because so I think I said, oh, you can crash at mine. And um, yeah, there was just this kind of like uh, thing in the air of like uh, magic, even from the very beginning, like uh, <laughs> just, just like a kind of knowing. There was like a knowing. I don't know, I can't explain it, but... Yeah, um, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> Stevie O was telling me... Yeah, well, it's, you can't quite put your finger on it, but I mean... Love at first sight, almost. <laughs> well, there was a lot of... There was a lot... Like, as we, as we got to know each other a bit better, there was quite a lot of um, sort of coincidences or what we call synchronicities that right. sort of made me think, oh, this is the right path to follow. Um, and... Um, yeah, I remember Stevie O telling me about this kind of community of techno people that he'd kind of, um, that had grown up around him, like younger people that he'd helped sort of nurture and he'd helped sort of set them on the path, like taught them the basics of making electronic music and he'd kind of like <coughs> created this community of techno, techno producers. Would one techno of those labels be Lee and the other ones? Lee, Lee. Leaf. Uh, Leaf, right, Leaf. Leaf, and... yeah, Tom Ellis. Right, Tom Ellis. Uh, Sam Watson. Sam Watson. You know, there was just obviously a community up there, and he told me all about it, and, um, you know, it sounded really great that, um, you know, you can kind of uh, Super. help people get into something and set them on a good path, you know. Um, yeah, so um, eventually, uh, well, you know, we, we, we stayed in contact, um and he had a house party where he invited a lot of people that um, were involved in the net label scene. So at the time, in the early days of the internet, there were people that were sharing music for free. Um, that they did, It was cheaper than trying to put it out on a physical format, and they were called net labels. So there were people like Lerato and... Um, oh, yeah, okay, Lerato. Mm -hmm. And Portable, Alan... Alan is it Alan Nabab? Yeah, Portable as well, huh? Okay. People like that. And, and um, so he had this house party and it was, uh, he said, well, you know, why don't you come along and play? So it's a bit of an effort for me to drag a bag of records on the train for five, six hours to Wales to play in a living room. <laughs> you know? 
But yes. I just thought it was the right thing to do. So uh, I went there. There was a really good party. Um, uh, there were some really nice people there and some really good DJs. I heard some great music. I mean, they ran they ran it like, you know, they had a lineup and slots and everything. And, and everyone was um, picking things off the lawn and making them into tea and getting a bit spank, spangled. And... Uh, yeah, no, it's a great party, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, meeting Dorato there, and um, yeah, and had a great time. Would and, you um, would you say the free rotation has just something special that a lot of festivals that you've played may not have? Yeah, that makes well, them what, so, you know. That's special. why I'm telling you this story because okay. basically that was that was in my mind that okay. that was that was the first free rotation. Okay. It wasn't officially. But because it's like born from like grassroots, right? Now what it is is a big house party, yeah. So that's what makes it different to other festivals for sure, because it's 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 grown organically. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not being like forced, or it's not being done with any kind of drive to for commerce or to make a lot of money. It's 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 been kind of created for the love of music and. Uh, to, to, to create a, an environment where people can uh, showcase their talents and also um, be liberated and free and um, experience a taste of what, you know, how human beings can get on. Right. You know, how to have community, how, how we can maybe, you know, evolve. And, and uh, you know, Stevie and Susie Peep, they're pretty, you know, tuned in with that sort of mindset. So, from, from the very beginning, like, I mean, why does anyone put a party on? My first experience with Free Rotation, um, he also contacted me as well, and I didn't know what I was getting into, but once I got there and I was there for three days, you know, you know, you get this, you get this feeling of everybody's equal, um, everybody, uh, I mean, he is booking star, I would say, independent stars, I would call, I would say, for my own, for my own perspective, and everybody's for one weekend on the same level and i took home from that this feeling um and like no other festivals you go in and you go out (laughs) with absolutely nothing to take with you other than uh being in the crowd with a bunch of people stomping and screaming and looking at the dj yeah um which also i take from them the fact that they are focused on uh, independent artists that are really uh, fighting for their ex- uh, freedom of expression, and then uh, not only DJs but um, visual artists as well. So, mm. yeah, and, and the, the me- becoming a members and not letting it get too big and out of control. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, like when I say it's grown organically, like yeah. it literally, you know. It has, and it got to this point, and they just realised it was, you know, it was as big as it needed to be. Exactly. And they didn't want to dilute the purity of the vibe, so they limited the tickets, and then to to create to create a situation where um, you you try to maintain that energy, you, you don't want randoms turning up and ruining the vibe, so you have to have a membership system. And some people think that's elitist and exclusionary. I mean, you know, in some ways, but people, people, people can't go. They have kids. They get married. They, 
they're exactly. on holiday you know exactly. there's always space if you really want to go where there's a will there's a way you know but um yeah um that's a big part of it obviously yeah but um, once you land your once you once you experience one you wouldn't say that um you managed to hold down residencies also at brighton's first floor parties um um, playing alongside with the likes of Function One, XDB, and more, uh, more on at diverse events like Wiggle and Fabrique, Labyrinth Festival in Japan, the, uh, yeah. the Big Beat um, Boutique, and uh, Essential Festivals now. Yeah. Um, do you have any memorable highlight moments playing at such amazing venues? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, free rose always a highlight. Sorry to bang on about it, but um, the yeah, I'm, I've, I've been really lucky to play at some pretty great spots. Um, um, they've all been a highlight, really. You know, like I'm not. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm, I don't take any of it for granted. Um, but you can't really. And I've said this before in previous interviews. You can't really compare many things to the labyrinth in japan i mean it's you know cool. labyrinth labyrinth in japan and free rotation are pretty on a similar sort of vibe really cool. like it's hippie it's hippie you know it's just kind of <laughs> it's a bit hippie you know that's it's i mean labyrinth started as a trance event so it's kind of over the years it's developed into sort of psychedelic techno and psychedelic house um but when i went there it was in 2006 and i was fortunate enough to be asked to go there by Russ and um, it was it ran for three days non-stop in those days now it's only on I think during the day I think it finishes at 2am or something I'm not oh, sure yeah. so so the music went all the way through the night and then they had ambient and dub in the day um, but uh, it was in a beautiful location called Gunma which is a camp campsite um, two hours outside Tokyo up in the up in the mountains so you're surrounded by nature like it's literally stage is a tp um you know it's and the sound system sorry i mean you know the sound system is you know one of the best sound systems i've ever heard Good. you know yeah, uh, i can imagine so yeah it's, i played in japan a couple of times and uh, but it was more hip-hop and mm. so there at the time but they they've always uh made sure the technique was <laughs> top notch yeah <laughs> they're pretty good with, with, with um the setups decks equipment sound systems i mean this was function one uh long long throw function one system so so, so this labyrinth there was a there was a, a special highlight moment can you mm. articulate why what what did you, did you get goosebumps from a mix you did? Was the people like just totally uh, bonkers about what you were doing? Was there any? Oh. Um, no, there was nothing like that in particular. I mean, I, I got a lot of um, good comments from people about my set, which was nice. But it was more just a, um, being in a country halfway around the world, up a mountain with an amazing sound system on this mysterious evening where it was really misty and while i was djing because i did the warm, i did a four-hour warm-up so i sort of introduced the festival they were lighting these huge candles in this kind of ritualistic way and it's just this magic in the air um people would obviously come from all around the world to, to perform at it and obviously I, there was a lot of people there that uh, were either expats living in japan or that literally flown in to go to the festival um 
the lineup was amazing. I mean, Matthew Johnson at the time had just put Marionette out, so you know he he did the live set. Um, can't remember who else was on the lineup now. Oh, uh, um, a guy called Dan Donaka Costello from Ireland, and uh, DJ Three, who's a legendary DJ from the States. So yeah, really good lineup, really good music, amazing sound, amazing location, and you know to be able to play play there for four hours was just a, a an honor to not not only to play there but to be there and experience this kind of magical situation Understood. you spend, yeah you spend a lot of time sorting music um so how would you describe your musical style um <laughs> <laughs> well i don't yeah i don't like to say that i've got a style that's the truth you know maybe think maybe i would have maybe progressed more in my career if I'd have just decided on a sound and made a name for that sound. Um, uh, let me be a little bit more specific. If you, if people, if your fans were coming to hear you play, what would what would they walk away distinctively, no, distinctively knowing what you do and your vibe and what you represent musically? I guess like what I really, really love is techno. But you know who can who can say they don't like house as well? Really, I mean, I, I love playing house music. But if I had to choose, I'd probably if I had to choose, I'd probably be more likely to sell my house records than I would be my techno records. Okay. Um, so I could probably say that. But in techno, I always I always um, refer back to Jeff Mills when he said that techno is what you haven't imagined yet or te techno is what you can't imagine. I can't remember what his exact expression was, but right. techno really should be something you haven't imagined before. So therefore techno is not a static thing. It should be something which is constantly trying to reinvent itself and come up with new ideas, which is, which is why any good techno DJ will probably be open to different sounds like dubstep or electro or, you know, slotting in some more housey stuff or some more breaky, breaky stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, really I'm interested in innovation and, uh, 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 and you know, interesting structures, And but that's not necessarily always going to lend itself to the dance floor because sometimes the dance floor just wants to hear, you know, a hi-hat, a clap and a kick drum. And sometimes that's all I want to hear, you know? So, okay. yeah, I mean, what, what, what <laughs> In answer to your question, I think what I'm always looking for is something innovative, and but I want something that's going to have some level of emotion to it. I like stuff that's I like stuff that's hypnotic and psychedelic, yeah, and you know trippy and okay. uh, I like stuff with energy. That's the answer I was looking um, for. Uh -huh. Yeah, but like recently, yeah, I, I've got in really not. It's not that I, I don't get as excited playing techno i like playing techno <laughs> i love playing i love playing you know i love playing on three decks if i can like just playing records on three decks that excites me but when i go out i want to hear the music broken up a little bit with electro or, 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 or more interesting um programming on the kick drums you know right and so sometimes i you know i do get bored just with oomsh, oomsh, oomsh. but um so i so i don't know i've just kind of like I've always been interested in electro and a few years ago I started playing a lot of electro on my radio shows and it seemed to be just before this new wave of uh, interest in electro happened so I've kind of ended up getting carried along on that wave and people have associated me with electro and some people think I'm an electro DJ 
Okay. Which, you know, that's all right. I like electro, but I've also got into like mixing up electro and sort of broken techno and then maybe going into 4-4 techno at the end. And Well, I'm listening to you now because on our yeah. next interview and our next show, I want to I want to I want to ask you the same question. I'm going to see okay. where, where you've gone. Well, yeah, that would be here. Yeah, that would be um, What gigs you got coming up next? Um, so next next this Saturday coming um, playing at a really cool event called 50 Arc yes, sir um, that's like a underground uh, low key mates only sort of um, no frills um, small ish 150 people mm-hmm. but um, the guys that put it on like, they've um, got really good taste in music and they've put an amazing sound system in there and um, with my girl yeah. Leah and Helen. Uh, and Leah's a resident. She's one of my favorite DJs and one of my best friends I'm lucky enough to have in my life. Um, and uh, yeah, there's no there's no heavy, heavy security breathing down your neck. And it's just a really nice vibe. So I'm looking forward to that on Saturday. They got me alongside um, a DJ called Kerry who works at Eastern Block in Manchester. Okay. She's doing a live Live bag, live bag, yeah. yeah. Yeah, she's she's quite talented. So, big uh, um, ups to 50 arc. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. And then uh, the next thing is on New Year's Eve in Manchester, um, a party for psychedelic disco. It's a funny name. Yeah, yeah. I don't know much about Manchester. I only went there once when I played for Meet Free in March, um, and that was a pretty good event. Um, and uh, I really like the city. And there's some great record shops there. So I'm looking forward to going back to Manchester. Um, yeah, and at the moment, um, I don't know what's happening next year, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, I need to I need to get some more uh, live sets out. I'm, I'm hoping to put my free rotation set out this week as well. So um, before we listen to your decisive podcast special mix, uh, when and where was it recorded, and uh, what are you serving us up today? Uh, well. That, that what I've given you was recorded at a festival called Audio Farm, which was, um, they've been doing festivals in Wales for maybe six, seven years, I'm not sure. Um, they've had a lot of, they come to free rotation every year, okay. people that run it, and okay. um, they have, they've had myself there before, they've had Stevie O, Sam Watson. Um, yeah, they, they, they book a lot of, They've had a lot of similar acts that play at Free Row, like Costa, XDB, DJ Bone. Yeah, so um, I played there this year. Um, I played after um, a guy called Jax uh, Ada, and I played before a Special Request, okay. Paul Wolford, and then um, Jerome Hill was also playing on the same bill. Um, and yeah, it was a kind of peak time-ish slot. Um, really good sound system. Um, yeah, really nice festival. Okay, good. Um, yeah, and, and they, big ups to the Audio Farm guys because they're um, trying to do a fundraiser at the moment to help them carry on doing the festival. So, oh yeah, look them up on uh, Facebook. How, yeah, I was going to say, how, how can we help? How can we uh, support them? Yeah, so I have got. I have, we'll have to just link it in. Okay, link, we'll link, link it, it up in. somehow. Right, but, um, yeah, I recorded it there, and this is what an hour segment of an hour and a half set. So it's the first hour from there. Okay, we'll get the the energy of the people up. Uh, I, I guess you, you. How did you uh, you recorded in what way? You you told me. Explain this. To, 
Oh yeah, yeah. So that was it. that was at the beginning of September, first of September. Um, well, I've got a recorder that records um, from the mixer right. uh, with the line in, and it also records the crowd and the room ambience with um, microphones that are inbuilt into the recorder, and it and it puts those two inputs on two separate stereo channels, and then if you want, you can blend crowd into the mix and you know you can bounce it down and uh get the levels right so that you you know when when people listen back to the live recording they get that kind of live feel you get a little right. bit of, you get a little bit of the reverb and the mm-hmm. room ambience and uh, mm-hmm. when when the, when, it, when the party's really going off it really does sound good especially in a small room um one more thing um <laughs> you mentioned that you're a member of the brighton swim club and you're also into yoga. Yeah. Um, how does this better your life? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, obviously, it goes without saying that physical exercise is not only good for your body and your heart and your mind, you know, your mind as well. You know, obviously, like, late nights and, um, you know, partying and everything can take its toll. And right, that's true. It just... I just need to have something that I can do which is totally different from from any of that and um you know swimming in the sea in Brighton is pretty well it's it's becoming more and more popular it's one of the biggest rising sports open water swimming but it's so different to the world of late nights clubs and smoke and you know basically being a vampire you're outside you're in nature you're you know you You've got the sun setting or the sun rising. You've got the birds flying overhead. You've got all the the minerals in the sea that your body absorbs, and it just makes you feel amazing. Um, so you, it's just a good uh, good good for me to, to do exercise. I love swimming, and um, it you know you, when you swim in the sea or in any kind of open water swimming, you end up. Uh, feeling pretty amazing afterwards and the the buzz from it lasts all day so it's just a win-win really it's just really beneficial in so many ways um and yoga i mean yoga's same thing really it's body... a lot of tension doesn't it yeah it's body conditioning you know it takes your it takes your awareness out of your mind and, and your your awareness is in your body and uh you're in the moment it's a moving meditation basically um I I don't I don't so much regularly anymore, but I have done a lot of meditation in my life as well. I should really be should really be doing a daily practice. But you know, in an aim to uh, counteract all the unhealthy things I do, I try and you know cycle, swim, yoga. Does this uh, influence your your music as you're playing, or you as a person? Does it? I think um I think that uh, anything that anyone does in their life is going to come out somehow in their musical taste or their or the way they express themselves, just themselves musically, I, I guess. Um, I would say that um, I would say that I've kind of always been fairly spiritual, and uh, you know, having done a lot of meditation retreats and kind of fairly into Buddhism, uh, you know, I think that does affect my choice of music and the way I play music and what I'm trying to say with music. I'm not so focused on just party. You know, I'm more. I, I, you know, I'm more interested in something which can maybe really, really resonate with someone on lots of levels. You know, their heart, their heart and their body. You know, the funk and also the, the kind of cosmic trippy side to it. Really, that's mm-hmm. what I'm looking for. Is to kind of, uh, you know, makes sense. Touch makes people sense. on a lot of levels, and I think that's just, yeah. I suppose, I suppose, being into yoga and meditation and that 
and being kind of spiritual definitely affects where I'm coming from musically, without doubt. I mean, it is music is spiritual. I mean, you, mm. you know, some of the most amazing things that you go and see and go and hear, they're not, you know, I don't know if Jeff Mills is particularly spiritual, but I know he's oh, really... Oh, yes. He's into he's the really, aliens. He's into he's aliens. In, he's into aliens in the movie. <laughs> yeah, theory of aliens, and, and he's into the cosmos, you know. In the cup, yeah. He's got a vision. He's got a vision, you know. But, um... Yeah. And look at someone like Stevie O and Susie B and the kind of event that they put on and you know obviously that's going to influence the kind of music he makes and then what happened at Free Rotation this year with uh, Circle of Live with Sebastian oh, yeah. and, and Matthew Johnson who both, both of whom were playing at Labyrinth actually when I was there um, you know these people are fairly conscious fairly aware and, and uh, you know what happened when they all just like jammed together for six hours was pure magic you know so yeah I, the answer to your question yes <laughs> okay cool with that said I want to thank yeah. you so much for the interview Mr. Downey and uh, thank you uh, for interviewing me for your time and for your interesting information um, okay people Enough said, let's get on with it. We're going to listen to the music, uh, his spiritual approach. <laughs> live, uh, recorded live from, again? Audio Farm Festival. Audio Farm uh, Festival. Yeah, this right. year. 1st uh, of September this year. My special guest, Mr. Alex Downey, in the mix. Let's get to it. Cool. Thanks for having me. <laughs> 